We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Daniel, how's the podcast email inbox looking? Oh, it's pretty massive. <laughs> massive? You mean like people are asking about math? <laughs> or are you just getting a lot of emails? Both, actually. We're getting many emails about massive topics. Well, it must be weighing heavily in the minds of our listeners. <laughs> but do you ever worry that your inbox is going to collapse into a black hole? I'm doing my best to keep it from growing by emitting email hawking radiation to shrink it. Ooh, how do you do that? You just, like, give out Stephen Hawking vibes? (laughs) No, I try to answer as many of them as I can. Well, I don't know if that works. You know that the more emails you write, the more emails you get. Yeah, you might be right. You know, I was hoping to get to some sort of, like, general relativity singularity, like inbox zero. Mm, But zero is not a singularity, isn't it? (laughs) Singularity means one. Or maybe you mean, like, all of the emails in the universe crammed into one message. (laughs) That would be awesome if I could answer all the questions all at once. But then what happens when you hit reply? Then it's not a singularity anymore. Then I collapse. I'm a cartoonist and the creator of PhD Comics. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and a professor at UC Irvine, and I love reading your emails. Send me more, more, more. Like all of a person's emails or just the ones related to physics? (laughs) I love reading the emails they send to me. Emails between other people, not interesting to me. (laughs) I was like, that's kind of nosy there. (laughs) I love reading people's emails. I am not the NSA. I'm not interested in what you wrote to your partner or to your kids or really to anybody else. But when you send me emails with questions about the universe, I love seeing those. But wait, if you were the NSA, would you tell us? If I was the NSA, I would say exactly what I'm saying now. (laughs) Which is nothing. (laughs) Very suspicious. Deny, deny, deny. That's the playbook. But anyways, welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. In which we dig into our questions about the nature of the universe. Why is it like this? Why isn't it some other way? How does it work? What's out there anyway? And can we make sense of it? We marinate in those questions and try to think up answers. We take you to the very forefront of human and scientific knowledge about what we do and do not know. And we also love hearing about your questions about the universe. Yeah, because it is an amazing universe, but it is kind of questionable, I feel, the universe. 
in the sense that it's a kind of a little bit sus, you know, <laughs> like it pretends to be one thing, but then when you dig into it, it's like totally different. <laughs> it's very questionable. That's just your interpretation, man. The universe has been consistent this whole time. You just misunderstood what was going on. Well, I see. Blame <laughs> me for being fooled, I guess. I blame all of humanity for its misunderstanding of the universe. You know, it's not like the sun was going around the earth for thousands of years while we thought that was happening. The earth was going around the sun the whole time. We just misunderstood. I see. So all those flat earthers out there, it's not their fault. <laughs> it is their fault. Exactly. It's their fault. They're misunderstanding what the universe is doing. The most amazing, incredible thing about the universe is that it does seem to be logically consistent, that it does make some sense, that it can be described at all by mathematical formulas that make sense to humanity. We don't even know why that is, but it gives us the power to unravel some of these mysteries through careful experimentation and thought. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. Also, when I said the universe is questionable, but it's, it's <laughs> like you can ask questions about it, you know, like you can think about it, look at things and formulate questions about it that then you can kind of uh, confirm or deny or answer using experiments. Yeah, I wish we could directly just ask questions to like an oracle of the universe and get answers that made sense to us. Instead, we have to sort of like corner the universe into revealing its secrets, setting up special circumstances that will answer our question and say like, oh, are you doing this or are you doing that? That's basically what we call experimental science is forcing the universe to reveal some of its secrets. But I wish it would just come right out and tell us. Mm, I guess you could ask Chad GPT. That's sort of like an oracle. <laughs> have you tried that? Have you like tried asking it physics questions? I have actually. It's just a nonsense generator. I mean, it just generates words. It doesn't have any understanding behind it. There's no like mind there. Not yet. Yet, exactly. <laughs> Do you think it'll replace physicists someday? No, ChatGPT is not capable of generating new knowledge. It's like a huge interpolation scheme. It just like reads a bunch of stuff. And when you ask it a question, it's like, hmm, maybe the answer is sort of between this thing I read and that other thing that I read. I think you're describing all of the entertainment industry right there. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like Die Hard meets Fast and Furious or something, right? That's exactly what they're up there doing. Meets physics. Just <laughs> mix physics in there and we've got a blockbuster. Netflix, we are ready to pitch you the details. But do you think maybe someday it will be able to do science? Like, you know, you could say the same thing about humans, that humans can't come up with anything new, but yet humans are still able to. Humans are definitely capable of coming up with new stuff. We're not just constrained by what we have learned. I think that our neural networks are much further advanced than chat GPT. It is, for example, possible to imagine a neural network which comes up with new theories and then like runs simulations to verify at least that its theories make sense. So you can imagine a chat GPT based theorist for example. Mm, be a chat PhD, maybe. <laughs> so you think it is possible then for an AI to do science in the future? Oh, in the future? Absolutely, yes. Because then you just have to plug it into external sensors and then it's taking data from the universe and then it could formulate its own theories. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's a theoretical limit, but large language models are not doing that at all. They don't have like a model inside them of how the universe works that they're using to generate hypotheses. They're just generating strings of text. But I wonder if right now, like maybe like... Um, you know, like the answer to the universe is there in all of the literature, all the physics literature that humans have made. We just don't see it right now. Maybe an AI could, you know, string together some papers and come up with <laughs> the one theory. It's certainly possible. There were lots of moments in the history of physics when great ideas were out there in papers, just waiting for somebody to read them and put them together. Like Einstein's formulation of a photon as an explanation for the photoelectric effect. All that dude did is read Planck's papers and read papers about the photoelectric effect and put those two things together, chocolate plus peanut butter, and boom, he had a Nobel Prize. There you go. He just did a reboot is what you're saying, right? <laughs> he was like, I have a new theory. It's dark matter meets black holes meets electromagnetic force. Boom. Yeah, that's what he did. He was like, Vin Diesel plus Bruce Willis equals movie gold. But speaking about asking questions about the universe, that is sort of how scientists explore the universe. It's by asking questions. And it's not just scientists that ask questions. Everyone has questions, even our listeners. Especially our listeners. These are folks who think deeply about the nature of the universe and are inherently curious about why things work the way that they do. People who are listening to the podcast are trying to assemble in their minds some understanding of what's going on out there. And sometimes a bit of that like sticks out or doesn't mesh well with another part. And so then they write to us and they ask us about it. Can you explain this to me? Or are you 
said this and I thought you were going to say that and it doesn't make any sense. Please clarify. And I love getting your questions. So if you are thinking about the nature of the universe or don't understand something that we said, please write to us to questions at DanielAndJorge.com. Yeah, I wonder if a lot of people don't know this by now that you can write to that email and actually get an answer. You're sort of like Chad GPT for physics and podcasts. <laughs> I'm going to try to take that as a compliment. <laughs> I do indeed string words together to answer people's questions. There you go. And you, and you don't do any new research. You're just kind of like parsing old research to give them answers. <laughs> well, it's true that answering these emails prevents me from doing research because it takes my time. <laughs> but I'm very glad to do it. Absolutely. Maybe you should get ChatGPT to do your job and then you can just answer questions. Maybe all I'm doing right now is reading ChatGPT responses to what you say. Oh my God, maybe I'm, you mean I'm talking to an AI right now? Could be, could be. Maybe I'm the NSA, maybe I'm an AI, maybe I'm a combination. <laughs> maybe you're the NSAI. Oh my God, <laughs> let's green light that movie. Maybe Vin Diesel is talking to an AI and the NSA is spying on them and I'm relaying what the NSA has learned. Oh, all right, you, you got me. <laughs> I am Vin Diesel. I knew it this whole time. <laughs> I mean, I, need, I feel like I need a deeper, more gravelly voice. <laughs> but anyways, people do have questions and Daniel always answers them. And sometimes he picks some of these uh, questions to answer on the podcast. That's right. Sometimes there's a question that requires me to do a little bit of research or there's a question I imagine a lot of people might be asking and would like to hear the answer to. Do they get a prize if they stump you? <laughs> they get to hear their question on the podcast. Yeah, but do they get a prize, like a, a value? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You get to uh, have your question heard by tens of and thousands and thousands of people. And you get the warm feeling that other people out there who were curious about the same thing are also hearing an answer. So today on the podcast, we'll be tackling... Listener questions, number 38. This is our 38th episode where we answer questions. Indeed, and we have many more of these stocked up. I get these emails every single day and they are piling up. So we are trying to work through the backlog. Well, today we have some awesome questions here about rogue planets, about the electromagnetic force and the event horizon, and also about black holes and hamsters. So our first one comes from Spencer. Hi, Daniel and Jorge. My name is Spencer. I hear there are millions of rogue planets in the Milky Way. Do we know how close the nearest one is? What would happen if one got so close, the sun's gravity pulled it into our solar system? Even if one passed by the Oort cloud, would it cause problems? Thank you. All right, awesome question from Spencer. He sounds young. <laughs> he sounds young and curious. Which is the best, which also applies to me, I think. He also sounds kind of concerned. He's a little bit worried about what's going to happen to our solar system if one of these rogue planets comes for a visit. Yeah, it does sound a little concerning. Even the name rogue planet, it sounds like a, a ne'er-do-well planet or a planet that's up to no good. It's kind of sus, right? Like, what are you doing over there, planet? Like, get in line. There <laughs> you go. <laughs> just call them sus planets. <laughs> I don't know why astronomers don't just adopt your names. I don't either. But let's dig into his question here. Uh, Spencer wanted to know how close is the closest rogue planet out there? And what would happen if one came into our solar system? Would it kind of mess things up or would it change things? Would it cause a meteor shower? What would happen? So let's dig into it, Daniel. What exactly is a rogue planet? So a rogue planet is the name we give to a planet that's not gravitationally bound to a star. So the Earth, for example, is orbiting the sun and you can think of it as like trapped by the sun's gravitational field. There are other planets out there wandering the Milky Way, just zooming around that are not trapped by any particular star. They feel the tugs of those stars, but they have like enough velocity that they can escape the gravitational attraction of any particular star. So they're sort of like on their own. You might also call them like orphan planets. Oh, sounds sad a little bit. Can you adopt a planet? <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. You can also give up planets for adoption or you can just sort of like eject them. And in fact, we think that's where most of the rogue planets came from. We think that probably planets are formed in the same process as stars are formed. They have a big cloud of gas and dust which collapses to form a planetary system. And you have the star at the heart and you form planets also further out in the disk. But in the early days of that formation, it can be a little bit chaotic. It's not necessarily the case that gravity forms objects in a way that's going to be stable forever. So sometimes those objects will interact with each other and like a big planet might even eject little planets from the solar system. Mm, you mean like every planet, even the rogue planets out there, 
have to have come from a star? Is it possible to make a planet uh, just out of like uh, gas and debris out there in space? Without a star forming? It is possible, and there's a big debate exactly about what constitutes a rogue planet. Because, for example, you can imagine a clump of stuff that doesn't have enough mass to turn into a star that ignites a diffusion. Something like a brown dwarf, right? Or like a super Jupiter. And so as that clump gets smaller and smaller, it could still form into an object. So there's a bunch of stuff out there that people are wondering, like, hmm, did this come from a solar system or did it form on its own? Hmm. But the basic answer is that a rogue planet is just a planet that's out there in space, but it's not orbiting a star. And it could have come from a star system or it could have maybe just formed out there by itself. Exactly. And the thing that might be surprising to a lot of people is how not very rare this is. Like in our solar system, we have good reason to believe that there was once another big planet that got ejected when Jupiter and Saturn wandered into the inner solar system and then turned around and went back out to their current locations. They probably ejected a big planet out there into the Milky Way. So we probably have lost a planet. If you look out there into the Milky Way, there's evidence that there might be billions or even trillions of these things in the Milky Way. Whoa. Okay, wait, wait, wait. First of all, you mean like there might be like like the Earth might have a twin sibling out there that's out there in space lost? Yeah, we don't know if it's a rocky planet like the Earth or another gas giant. But if you look at the history of the solar system, it makes the most sense sort of gravitationally if there was another planet which has now been lost. Whoa. It's like that story where, you know, twins are born and then separated <laughs> at birth. And what if it comes back? <laughs> This is more like Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know, there were like 10 kids and one of them got given up. Mm, I'm not familiar with that Broadway reference, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. But the other amazing thing you said was that uh, the Milky Way maybe has trillions up to possibly trillions of rogue planets in it. That's maybe more than regular planets. Yeah, it's really uncertain because these things are hard to see. You know, planets in general are difficult to spot because they don't glow, right? Stars you can see in the sky, they send you photons, you know they're there, even if they're distant, even if they're in other galaxies. Planets, of course, don't glow. So you can best see them when they're close to stars, so they reflect their light. Even that's tricky, right? Because the stars are far away and the planets are pretty close to the stars. So you need really fancy technology to see the planets near the stars. But planets that are just like out there floating in the black, it's pretty hard to spot them. So there's a lot of uncertainty about how many there are. But you're saying it's possible there could be more than there are regular planets orbiting stars. Yeah, they did this really cool study looking for micro lensing, looking for examples of when a star's light is distorted because some massive object passes in front of it. So imagine there's some star out there in the Milky Way and a rogue planet like interrupts the path of photons between us and it. It can basically create an eclipse or a little gravitational micro lensing event. So people have looked for these and seen a bunch of them. And you, of course, can't see every single rogue planet out there using this technique. You have to get very, very lucky. But they saw so many of them that they were able to extrapolate the number of rogue planets. And that's where this estimate comes from. But it's a really big extrapolation with a lot of uncertainty. I feel like the fact that they're hard to see is very on brand with the name rogue planet. <laughs> You know, like, declare your intentions, planet. What are you doing out there sneaking around in the dark? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they were open and invisible, you probably wouldn't call them rogue planets. We need to get the galactic NSA to go spy on these things and figure out what they're up to. Oh, interesting. You mean like a galactic physics team or something? <laughs> GPT? I'm going to send Vin Diesel out there to do this. Well, uh, Spencer's question here was... What would happen if maybe a rogue planet came into our solar system? Because that can totally happen, right? These rogue planets are just floating around in between stars, in the space between stars. And so it's totally possible that maybe one of them, maybe a big one, could come into our solar system. Yeah, it's definitely possible. And the number of billions, maybe trillions is kind of scary. But remember that stars are really far apart. So there's a lot of space out there for planets to be floating around and just never bother anyone. We don't know how close the closest rogue planet is because, of course, they're very dark. And so there could be one kind of close that we don't see. The closest one that we have seen is about seven light years away. Now, remember, the closest star is about four light years away. So the closest rogue planet is further than the closest star. But we saw it and we saw it from its infrared emission. These things are pretty cold, so they don't glow in the visible light, but they do glow in the infrared. So some of our infrared space telescopes can spot these things. Well, wait, we've actually seen one? Like, um, what does it look like? It looks like a star, but it's really dim and mostly in the infrared. Is that 
how we detected it. Yeah, exactly. This one is called WISE 08550714. And it's called WISE because it was the WISE telescope, which is an infrared telescope, which spotted this thing. And from its emissions, you can estimate its temperature because remember, everything in the universe glows and it glows at a different spectrum based on its temperature. Hotter things glow in the UV, colder things glow in the infrared. So from its emissions, they can estimate that this thing's surface temperature is like 260 Kelvin. So like kind of like our temperature, but it's like something between five and 10 times the mass of Jupiter. Whoa, it's huge. Wouldn't you call that just like a, a red dwarf or something? Or wouldn't it be equivalent to a red dwarf? A red dwarf has to be bigger because a red dwarf actually has fusion going on in the heart of it and it is glowing. But something that isn't big enough to actually ignite fusion is called a brown dwarf. And in order to be called a brown dwarf, you have to have 13 times the mass of Jupiter. And this thing is like five to 10. So it's right on the threshold between rogue planet and sort of a failed star. It's a rogue dwarf, maybe, <laughs> which I think is, is a new kind of Dungeons and Dragons class of character. <laughs> it's got some special spells. Well, that's interesting. You can see one. And how do we know how big it is? I mean, it's so far away, 7.3 light years. Wouldn't it just look like a pinpoint from here? How can we know how heavy it is? It comes from models of brown dwarfs. Like we have ideas for how these things form, how they get to be a certain temperature. So from the temperature, basically, we infer like how massive it would have to be in order to have that temperature. So that's also like very uncertain. We can't measure the physical size of this thing. It is just a pinprick. But just from the spectrum, we could say what's the most likely object to have emitted this kind of photon. And that's where we get the mass from. Now, you said this is the closest one we've observed. Do you think this is the closest rogue planet to us? Or could there be more rogue planets that are closer to us? Almost certainly there are more rogue planets that are closer to us, right? We look at a tiny spectrum of the sky. These things are very dim. You basically have to point the telescope right at one of these things in order to see it. So we kind of got lucky. It's almost certainly true that there are other rogue planets that are closer. We just haven't seen them yet. I mean, we haven't even seen every rock in our solar system, right? Asteroids inside our solar system escape our detection all the time because they just don't reflect light at the right angle for us to spot them. So now we're talking about stuff that's much further away than inside our solar system. It's definitely possible for there to be other rogue planets pretty close by. Well, let's get into Spencer's idea for a new Netflix movie. What if a rogue planet came into our solar system? What would happen? Would it mess things up or would it just go straight through? It would be bad. We do not want a rogue planet to go through our solar system. There's a whole spectrum from like disastrously, terribly Vin Diesel bad all the way up to dinosaur annihilation of the earth kind of bad or possibly maybe not very much happens but there's a huge spectrum there like the worst case scenario is a rogue planet comes in and smashes into the earth like actually collides planet on planet i guess that's a possibility but it, it seems almost impossible right i mean the solar system is a huge place it's almost like what are the chances that we'll run into an asteroid or anything like that, right? It'd be really bad luck. It would be really bad luck. Somebody would have to throw a dart from a zillion miles away and hit a bullseye. Absolutely. This thing would be moving really fast. So it's not like its gravity and Earth's gravity would attract each other. The typical velocity in the Milky Way is, you know, tens of kilometers per second. So it'd be zipping quite along. On the other hand, you know, Earth has had big collisions in the past. We think that the formation of the moon came from the collision of Earth and some other planet. So there have been like massive planet planet collisions in the solar system before. Mm. And I guess if these things are maybe five times bigger than Jupiter, that's that's pretty big. That makes it that makes it more likely to uh, run into it. Yeah. And Earth would be like a mosquito on the windshield of this thing if that happened. Right. It might not even impact that planet too much if Earth smashed into it. Well, that would be a sad death. <laughs> that would be a sad death. Exactly. Remember when that comet hit Jupiter, we saw those big collisions that made fireballs the size of the Earth and Jupiter just like shrugged it off. So now you're talking about a planet like five or 10 times the size of Jupiter and running into Earth. It would just like gobble us up without even noticing. Mm, it would gobble Jupiter up without <laughs> noticing. That would be really spectacular. A huge collision between Jupiter and something else would create an enormous light show in our solar system. And at first, it'd be really fascinating because we'd learn a lot about the interior of Jupiter and this other planet because they would be strewn all over the solar system. On the other hand, it would create a lot of debris and some of that would probably come down to Earth and rain down on us which would be bad. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds cool, but not if you live in Jupiter. <laughs> Even if this thing hit the sun, which is not too unlikely, that would also be dangerous. 
I mean, the thing would be tiny compared to the sun, right? But it could cause like a disruption in the sun, maybe a huge coronal mass ejection, which could like fry all of our satellites. All right, uh, maybe step us through some of the possibilities that could happen. You said it can come in and hit us. It can maybe come in and hit another planet and create a bunch of debris that then gets to us. Are there other possibilities? Like, could it disrupt the meteor clouds out there, like uh, Spencer mentioned? Even if it doesn't smack into the sun or smack into any planets, Spencer was totally right that it could cause other disturbances in our solar system. Like, number one, it could tug on planets and change their orbits. Like, it could make the Earth's orbit more elliptical so that we have, like, weird seasons or so that we're like not really in the habitable zone anymore or even if it doesn't affect the earth's orbit directly our sun and our solar system is surrounded by a huge pile of snowballs out in the Oort cloud that spencer mentioned and sometimes things will come by and disturb one of those and it'll fall into the inner solar system as a comet those comets are spectacular but they're also dangerous right we are downwind of all of those things and if one of them smacks into the earth it's like dinosaur extinction all over again so overall not a good picture to invite a rogue planet into our system. Exactly. Do not invite any rogue planets. Is there a positive outcome? Like, could we adopt this planet? Like, could this planet come in and just join the party and everything's all right? It's possible, I suppose, that it comes into the outer solar system and doesn't really disrupt the inner solar system that much. But a really big one would have impacts all over the solar system. I mean, Jupiter, for example, influences every other object in the solar system gravitationally because of its mass. Now, a small rogue planet in the outer solar system might not do much damage and it might just be kind of cool. So the benefits would be like, ooh, astronomers would be pretty excited. Mm, interesting. All right. Well, it sounds like the answer is that the closest rogue planet that we know about is 7.3 light years away. And if one ever came into our solar system, it would probably not be good. It would be pretty bad news, but it might make Vin Diesel have a cool adventure. For the last time. Unfortunately, <laughs> we would all have one last adventure, it seems. The ultimate fast and furious. The last and furious. <laughs> All right, let's get into some of these other questions from listeners. But first, let's take a quick break. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're answering listener questions today, and we just answered a question from Spencer about rogue planets. And so let's get into some of these other questions. The next question comes from Mark, who's from Belgium. Hi, Daniel and Jorge. This is Mark from Belgium. I have a question for you guys. You told us on the podcast that you can know three things of a black hole, namely its mass, its rotation, and its electrical charge. Now, on the other hand, if the electromagnetic force is transmitted by photons, but they are not able to escape the event horizon of the black hole, how can any observer ever measure the electrical charge of a black hole? Thank you. Love the podcast. Awesome. Thank you, Mark, for that great question. And also thank you to Spencer. I forgot to thank him for his question. But Mark has an interesting question here about black holes and their charge. Yeah, I love this question from Mark. It gets to the heart of a question that I get all the time about how information can escape the event horizon. And if you're feeling a black hole's mass or charge, are you getting information from inside the event horizon? Yeah, it's kind of a tricky question because, as we've mentioned here on the podcast, a black hole is called a hole because information and things like light cannot escape it once it goes in. And so I guess the general question is like, how do we measure anything about black holes? Because if nothing can come out of them. Yeah, well, you can measure things about black holes the way you can measure things about any other object. You know, you can measure a black hole's mass by seeing the gravity that it induces on nearby stuff. That's one way that we detect black holes. We see like stars whizzing around them being pulled by their gravity. And you could, in theory, do the same thing about its charge. You could see the effect of a black hole on an electron or on a proton or any other charged particle that would feel its field. The way you can feel a black hole's gravitational field, even if you're not inside the event horizon, you can also feel its electric field, even if you're not inside the event horizon. Mm, That's interesting. It makes me wonder if like, you know, gravity is made out of particles like gravitons, for example. Could gravitons escape a black hole? Yeah, that's really the heart of Mark's question. He's imagining that all information about forces is transmitted via particles. And I think he asked his question about electromagnetism because we know that electromagnetism is communicated via photons. So he's wondering, like, how does that work when a particle flies by a black hole? Can the singularity, if it has electric charge, emit a photon to pull on that particle and affect it? How does that work if the photons are trapped inside the event horizon? I think that's the core of his question. Yeah, he's sort of asking, how do you measure the charge of a black hole if you can't really talk to a black hole because the black hole can't emit photons? And the short answer to the question is that the event horizon doesn't prevent a field from existing. It sort of freezes the field of the black hole. Like the black hole gets its electric charge from something that fell into the black hole that had electric charge, like you threw an electron into it, right? Well, what happens when you throw an electron into a black hole is it had a field just before it fell into the black hole. What happens when it falls past the event horizon is that field is now frozen. Anything else that the electron does inside the event horizon, move around, wiggle, do a little dance, whatever, you don't learn anything about that. You just see the electron's field from the moment before it fell in. That field is frozen. And so you can still feel that field. In fact, it has to freeze. Otherwise, you would be learning something about what's going on beyond the event horizon. Well, I think what you're saying is that when an electron goes into a black hole, the field doesn't disappear, it just kind of gets frozen. But you also said like you can feel that electric field, but to feel that electric field, you need photons, right? To feel it, to have it impact something else, it needs to communicate a photon. And so how did that photon escape? 
the event horizon? Yeah, that's a great question. The short answer is that you don't need photons to feel an electric field. You only need photons to get updates about the electric field. In fact, that's what a photon is. I mean, step away from a black hole for a moment and think about how you make a photon. How would you generate radiation? Take an electron. It's just floating in space. It has an electric field. If it just sits there and keeps its electric field, it's not shooting photons out. It just has a static electric field. To make photons, you got to like wiggle the electron. Wiggling the electron moves that electric field. And so it like changes the electric field. It makes it go up and down and up and down. That's what a photon is. A photon is an update to the electric field. It's a ripple in that electric field. A static electric field, you shouldn't think of it as like shooting photons out. It's just sort of like sitting there unchanging. A photon carries information about a change in the electric field. But once the electron falls into the black hole, there is no change in the electric field. It's just frozen. So wait, so you just, I feel like you confused me a little bit because you just said that feeling an electric field mm -hmm. is when the uh, electron field changes. But now you're saying that the electric field gets frozen at the edge of a black hole. So then there's, how can you feel the electric field? If there's no changing. You can feel a static electric field. There's no photon required there. A photon is emitted when the electric field changes. When you wiggle the electric field, you have an update to the electric field. That's when information is moving through the electric field. That's what a photon is. A photon is a wiggle in the electric field. And that's a real photon, right? There's also this concept of like virtual photons for people who don't like to think in terms of fields. There's two pictures to like how two particles interact with each other. The field picture is that an electron creates an electric field and that field can push on other charged particles. The other picture is like no fields are nonsense, everything's particles. What's happening instead is that there are virtual particles being emitted by one electron that pushes on the other electron. Mathematically, they're really equivalent. It's just like writing things down in different terms and giving them different philosophical names. I think the field, the field picture is clearest here because you can think of it as frozen. You can think of it as like fixed in space. There's no information being moved. Oh, I see. You're saying there's sort of two kinds of photons. There are the, there are the real photons that are sort of like the light that you can see. And then there's virtual photons, which is sort of how maybe particles interact or feel each other's electric fields. Exactly. You shouldn't think of virtual photons as like particles. They don't follow the same rules. They're not limited by the same rules. They can have weird properties like negative mass or all sorts of weird things. They're not really particles. They're really just another way of describing interactions for people who like to avoid thinking in terms of fields. And you can choose fields or particles. They're philosophically different, but mathematically equivalent. And so if you don't like to think about fields, you can think about instead as like an infinite sum of virtual particles. But really, it's the same thing. And in this case, it's much easier to understand what's going on if you think about it in terms of fields. So then an electron that goes or is about to go into a black hole, that electron that's at the edge can't emit a real photon. Like you can never see that electron but you can still maybe feel its pull through these virtual photons or it's kind of its field. Yeah, and it's the same thing with mass, right? Like you can still feel the mass of an object when it falls into the event horizon. It makes the black hole more massive. It has more gravity. What you're feeling is the gravity of that object just before it fell into the event horizon. It's frozen there. Now, the object can do whatever it likes when it's inside the event horizon. You'll never know. With the electron inside the event horizon may be wiggling and dancing and emitting all sorts of real photons within the event horizon you will never see. But the field that it had just before it fell in, that's now frozen in space. I still feel like maybe, uh, and I think this is what maybe Mark is wondering, even if it is a virtual photon that you're, that it's emitting and not a real one, it still feels like there's information coming out of the black hole. And that information feels like it shouldn't be able to come out if it, because it's a black hole. But the only information you're sensing is that an electron has fallen in, right? The field tells you an electron has fallen in. You knew that already. That's information from outside the event horizon. No information from within the event horizon, like what the electron did, if it got annihilated or destroyed or went to another universe or ate a banana. None of that information is coming out past the event horizon. The only thing you know is what you already knew before the electron went in, that there's an electron there and it has a field. Once it goes in, boom, that gets frozen in time. There's no more information coming out. Oh, I see. It's sort of like because a black hole freezes time at its edge, you're not getting information from the electron. 
inside the black hole, you're getting the information of the electron right before it fell into the black hole. Exactly. That's exactly the right way to think about it. Whatever field it had just before it fell in, it can't change because in order for it to change, you would have to be getting information about what it did after it fell through the event horizon. You can only know about what happened just before the moment it fell through the event horizon. That gets frozen in time. But then I guess if it gets frozen in time, how does it get out? If it's frozen in time, the electron can't get out and no more information can get out. But the field is still there because the black hole itself now has a charge, right? And electromagnetism says anything with a charge has an electric field. So think of the black hole as just like a big particle with a charge on it. It generates an electric field, right? You don't wonder like, how does the electron's electric field come out of the electron? That's just what an electric charge is. It's something that generates an electric field through space. Now assign that electric charge to the black hole, the whole thing, instead of to the electron within it. Assign it to the event horizon instead, if you like. Right. But like, let's say that a black hole has an overall negative charge. Like I have a neutral black hole, but I throw a bunch of electrons in. So now the black hole has a negative charge and it's over there. And over here, I have one electron. These two things are going to repel each other, right? My electron is going to be repelled by this negative black hole. How does that force get exchanged? Don't they need to swap real photons in order to push against each other? Mm -hmm. But those photons do not need to come from within the event horizon, right? Those photons can come from outside the event horizon. If you're just imagining the whole black hole itself has a charge now, then it interacts the way anything with a charge does. The way like you could replace it with just another particle that has a negative charge instead of thinking about it as a black hole. Oh, I see. It's sort of like the nature of these virtual particles. They're not really being exchanged like back and forth, they're more like they're they're coming into existence around my electron. Exactly. But a black hole can emit real photons also. Like take a charged black hole and wiggle it. What happens is its electric field wiggles because you're moving the black hole and it generates electromagnetic radiation from the outside of the event horizon. The same way if you wiggle a black hole, it generates gravitational radiation because you're changing the gravitational field in the vicinity in the same way. Anything with mass that you wiggle generates gravitational radiation. Anything with charge that you wiggle generates electromagnetic radiation from its outside. You don't have to know anything about what's going on inside past the event horizon. But wait, if you wiggle a black hole, you're saying it's supposed to glow, but wouldn't that light just get sucked back right into the black hole? Yeah, well, it's emitted from just outside the event horizon. So depending on the direction, it might like orbit the black hole or fall back in or it might escape. Yes, absolutely. That's cool. All right. It sounds like it's a little bit complicated. But to answer Mark's question, black holes that have charge, you can still measure their charge because that's just kind of how the universe is. I feel like that's the answer. <laughs> you just can <laughs> Because Daniel says so. Because the field is frozen, right? You can't learn about what happens after it falls into the event horizon. You're stuck with a story of what happened just before it fell in. I guess it's, maybe the answer is more like um, that's how the universe works. Like if something has charge, even if it's a black hole or something else, you can feel it from a distance. That's just that the way the universe is. With something, something has a charge that you feel it from a distance. And the exact mechanism, whether it's like photons, virtual photons, or if it's just how, that's how fields work, I feel like it, maybe that's kind of the answer. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. You know, the electron that falls in, maybe it's transformed into something else. It's not an electron anymore, but the charge persists, right? So now just put that charge on the event horizon. Say now the event horizon has a charge and it acts like any other charged object in the universe. Well, thank you, Mark, for that question. And so let's get into our last question of the episode. And this one comes from... 10-year-old in Canada who has a question about black holes and llamas. So let's get into that. But first, let's take another quick break. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. 
It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are answering listener questions today. And our last question comes from Daniel, another Daniel. Is this your um, alternate universe Daniel version or did you clone yourself? This is like mini me, yeah. 10-year-old Daniel curious about black holes. Whoa. Did you go back in time <laughs> and ask yourself what you wanted to know in your future podcast? That sounds like another Netflix movie <laughs> idea, by the way. That does. Is Vin Diesel going to play me in that version? I think maybe that is the plot of a <laughs> Netflix movie starring Ryan Reynolds. I think they'd be more likely to get Seth Rogen to play me than Ryan Reynolds. That would be a pretty good casting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll take uh, Simu Liu, I guess. Oh, I see. Sounds good. Well, anyways, uh, this last question comes from A. Daniel, and he's 10 years old, and he's from Canada. Hello, Daniel and Jorge. I'm Daniel, 10 years old and from Canada. I love your podcast and thank you for choosing me for it. I was wondering whether it was possible to make a black hole out of a single particle. And if you can, will it be able to suck in something bigger like a hamster or a llama? Thank you. Awesome question. Daniels must have really good questions in general. <laughs> you know, I'm worried about this Daniel's pets. Does he have a hamster and a llama? And he's like thinking about making a black hole and what it would do to them. Is he planning an experiment? Like he wants to get rid of the, his hamster or llama. <laughs> or maybe he wants to get rid of the llama, but not the hamster. And so he's wondering like, how big of a black hole do I need to make <laughs> so I can get rid of one, but not the other? Maybe he's tired of cleaning up after this llama and he's got plans. Yeah, or maybe he needs more room for more hamsters. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's a great question. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, Daniel's question here is, can you make a black hole out of a single particle? And if you can, uh, what size of mammal can it uh, absorb? <laughs> Exactly. And I think we need to be precise here. He's very interested up to a few decimal points. 
maybe we should have corresponded with Daniel's parents before we gave him instructions for how to destroy the family pet. But hey, let's yeah. just go with it. <laughs> Why constrain the curiosity of youth? I Heart Legal will defend us in court, I'm sure. There you go. Well, it's a great question, and the answer is that we don't know because we don't understand the gravity of tiny little particles. It's a fun question because in general relativity, we say that you can make a black hole out of basically anything as long as you squeeze it down to be dense enough. Like you take the Earth and you squeeze it down to like the size of a peanut, it could make a black hole. You don't need a huge amount of mass to make a black hole. What you need is an enormous density. So the sun could be a black hole. The Earth could be a black hole. You could be a black hole if you squeezed it down hard enough. That's in general relativity, which says that like space and matter are continuous. And so you can have infinitely small stuff and you can squeeze things down as much as you like. And the rules don't change as you get to really small stuff. Even a hamster, right? Like you can make a black hole out of a hamster. <laughs> how big would you have to squeeze a hamster? Or how, how small would you have to squeeze it to make a, bla a black hamster hole? Oh man, the human in me doesn't want to answer that question, but the physicist says that it's smaller than a millimeter. <laughs> Give in to the dark side. <laughs> Nobody out there, please squeeze your hamster down to a millimeter size hamsterino to test my calculations. It's probably smaller than a millimeter, right? Isn't it? All right, let's do the calculation. So if you look up the Schwarzschild radius, that's like basically the radius that you need to compress an object to make it a black hole. It's a pretty simple formula. It's two times big G times the mass divided by the speed of light squared. Big G is the gravitational constant. So if we plug that in and we say like, mm, how massive is a hamster? It's like what, 0.1 kilograms? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't, met, uh, haven't weighed a lot of hamsters in my life. <laughs> well, if you assume the object is 0.1 kilograms and you plug that all in, then the math tells us that you need to squeeze your hamster down to less than 1.5 times 10 to the negative 28 meters. So that's a really pretty tiny number. Whoa. What is that? Is that down to the size of like an atom maybe or, or what? How much is an angstrom? Oh, an atom is much, much bigger than 10 to the minus 28 meters. Humanity's only ever probed down to like 10 to the minus 20 meters in our deepest collisions in proton colliders, for example. So we're talking about things that are much, much smaller than our idea of like the size of a quark. Oh, wow. So I guess if you take a hamster and squeeze it down that small, then it would be a mini black <laughs> According to general relativity, right? But we don't think that general relativity is an accurate description of what happens when things get really, really small, because that's when quantum mechanics takes over. Quantum mechanics tells us the universe is not smooth and continuous, but it's discrete. That matter is broken up into chunks and that maybe even space is quantized. And so in order to answer this question, we need a theory of quantum gravity that tells us what happens to gravity for particles. Well, I think maybe Daniel's general question is... Like if you can make a black hole out of anything and why can't can you make it out of one particle? Because as you say, all you need is a bunch of mass concentrated in one place. And maybe he's thinking like a single particle out there in space by itself is mass and it is constrained to a very small spot because technically particles point masses. And so then um, doesn't it mean you have kind of like infinite density in a particle out there in space and wouldn't that make a black hole? Yeah, it's a great question, and he's totally right. right. If electrons really are point particles where they have mass and no volume, then they're already singularities and they should be black holes. And so one answer to that question is, well, quantum mechanics must prevent it from happening. There's something going on there that says this theory of black holes just doesn't work anymore when you get to really, really small masses. Something else takes over. Or could it be that electrons are black holes? They just look like electrons from the outside to us. That's the other answer. It's like, well, how would you know, right? Maybe electrons actually are black holes and they have been this whole time. And there's actually a theory about that that suggests that all electrons actually are black holes. And this connects with Mark's question because like, how would you tell? How do you know what's going on inside an electron anyway? If it was a super tiny black hole, you just assign its charge to its electronic event horizon and it acts exactly the same way. 
Wait, wait, wait. There is a theory out there that says that all particles, electrons, quarks, everything that exists in nature is its own little black hole. Yes, there is actually a theory out there. It's kind of fringe, but there are some theorists who are working on that saying like, hmm, if these things really are point particles, maybe we don't need to explain away why they're not black holes because there's no consequence of them being black holes. They just are, which would mean that like, hey, your hamster is already made of black holes. Like it would mean we're made out of black holes. Yeah, it would mean like every particle in my body that I'm made out of is a black hole. I am like a giant black hole system. Yeah. And if you're wondering, well, why wouldn't the electron black hole then just like suck everything up? Remember, black holes don't really just suck things up. I mean, they have gravity just like anything else with that mass has gravity. And we're talking about an electron. It has almost no mass has a tiny, tiny mass. And so its mass isn't enough to suck other things up. Like the gravity between an electron and a proton in the hydrogen atom is basically zero, especially compared to their electromagnetic interaction. And so it's totally possible for the proton and the electron to be black holes orbiting each other, making black hole hydrogen. Interesting. Yeah, you just made me think like, what if a black hole, kind of referencing our previous question, what if a black hole has a super amount of negative charge? Like you throw a bunch of electrons into it, so it's super negatively charged. And then you take two of those negatively charged electrons, they would repel each other mostly, right? Like if you put enough electric charge, they wouldn't be attracted to each other and suck each other in. They would actually repel each other. And so from a long distance away, they would just look like two giant electrons. Yeah, exactly. Because remember, gravity is very, very weak. I mean, in the case of black holes, it happens to be powerful because typical stellar black holes are super massive. So you can get really close to a lot of mass. But if you can make black holes out of low mass things like electrons, that doesn't mean they're very powerful. Their electromagnetic charge is much more powerful than their mass. And so the most interesting thing about these electron black holes is not their mass, it's their charge that dominates what they do. So maybe one answer to Daniel's question is, uh, can you make a black hole out of a single particle? Uh, the answer is maybe yes. Maybe all <laughs> particles are black holes. Maybe you already did, Daniel, without asking your parents. <laughs> maybe. Well, his hamster and llama would already be black holes. So good luck getting rid of them. Yeah, but to the relief of his hamster and his llama, if you did make an electron black hole or if electrons are black holes, they would have almost no effect on your nearby hamster or llama because, again, their gravity would be so tiny, right? Not all black holes instantaneously grow to become super big black holes. In fact, we think that really small black holes radiate away their mass really rapidly and don't last for very long. Hawking says that tiny black holes radiate, though we've never seen that. So that's in conflict with his theory of like electron black holes, because Hawking would say an electron black hole wouldn't last very long. It would radiate away all of its energy. But we don't know what's going on for these particles. These are two very different ideas of microscopic black holes, neither of which is probably right. The universe is probably doing something even weirder. Well, I think the general answer is that once you get down to single particles, or at least at that scale, then you get these quantum effects. And basically, you don't know what happens at that level. Like it could be that all particles are black holes, or it could be that there's something quantum about them that prevents a black hole from forming. Some people think that there might be a minimum mass to a black hole because a black hole smaller than that would radiate away all of its energy basically instantly. But we just don't know. We do not have a theory of quantum gravity and it prevents us from asking really interesting and important questions that affect the lives of hamsters and llamas all over the world. Well, maybe to uh, answer Daniel's uh, curiosity here, what would be the size of a black hole that could suck in a hamster or a llama or a hamster, but not a llama? <laughs> Or a llama, but not a hamster. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. In order to put your hamster in danger, you'd need an object with approximately the gravity of the Earth so you could like feel its force or maybe a little bit less. But you wouldn't need something the mass of the Earth because you could feel the same equivalent strength of its gravity much, much closer up. So you wouldn't need a black hole in the mass of the Earth, but it would have to be really pretty massive. I think you're talking about something like the mass of the Empire State Building. You mean to make like a tiny black hole that could actually, you know, if you put it close to your hamster, it would suck your hamster in. It would need enough gravity to suck your hamster in. And for that, it would need to have a significant amount of mass. An electron would not do it. Even another hamster mass black hole would not do it because a hamster has very, very low gravity. Well, Daniel, that's your answer then. Go get the Empire State Building and make a black <laughs> hole out of that. Uh, and then, uh, then you can suck in your llama. And for the sake of iHeartLegal, that was Jorge's suggestion. I do not condone turning the Empire State Building into a black hole. But your 10-year-old self does want to know. And <laughs> so, which means maybe we've now altered the timeline. We've given your, 
younger self this information <laughs> and then created a split timeline where a 10-year-old you creates a black hole to suck in his llama or your your llama, I guess, or his llama, <laughs> and then uh, destroyed the earth in that timeline. So it's not going to affect our timeline. So I think we're safe legally. I didn't follow any of that, but I'm going to trust you. Well, that was the plot of my new Netflix movie, so, <laughs> okay. starring Vin Diesel and Ryan Reynolds. Is there an alternate post credit scene where Daniel is the llama? <laughs> yes, that happens too. And uh, coincidentally, that whole plot was just written by Chad GPT. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, young Daniel, who may or may not be Daniel's real younger self. And thanks to all of our listeners who sent us questions today. Thanks very much to everybody whose curiosity powers science and powers this podcast and keeps us entertained. Please continue to write to us with your questions, your thoughts, your musings, your complaints about the universe to questions at danielandjorge.com. We hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.